Hello, and thank you for joining us on the Business Advantage Presents AT Law with Tammy Gaw. I am Alicia M. Pennington, your host and owner of Advantage Athletic Training. Back today with Tammy to talk about preventable conditions. This episode comes on the heels of pre-existing conditions, which is different than preventable conditions, as we will be discussing separate types of circumstances, such as rhabdomyolysis and heat illness. As always, we will have Tammy Gaw alongside us to help explain and demystify the legal aspects of these topics, all while determining applicable solutions for the everyday athletic trainer. Because the information discussed and provided in the accompanying podcast is prepared for a general audience without investigation into the facts of each particular case, it is not legal advice. Tammy Gaw does not have a lawyer-client relationship with any listeners. The thoughts and commentary about the law contained on this podcast is provided as a service to the community and does not constitute solicitation, or provision of legal advice. Prevent is defined as to be in readiness for something such as an occasion, to meet or satisfy in advance, to act ahead of, to go or arrive before, or to keep from happening or existing. What I gather from these definitions is that prevention means taking action before something happens. Tammy, is that how the law looks at prevention? Well, I think a good example uh, would be to look at a paper done by Thomas Barton, who's a professor at the California Western School of Law. He did this paper for the American Bar Association on preventative law that made a few really good points. Um, He talked about the basic principles of preventative law that fall into a couple of different categories. There can be preventing a problem from occurring, which is generally easier, cheaper, and better service to a client than waiting to react to a problem that occurs. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's from perspective of a lawyer, but we see our patients the same way that, that lawyers see uh, mm-hmm. clients. Mm-hmm. Another aspect is that not all planning is preventative. Mm-hmm. Sometimes planning to win a dispute is not necessarily planning mm-hmm. to prevent the problem from arising. That's a good point. So that's sort of a variable that can be looked at there. Mm-hmm. Um, What I really like that he points out is that thinking preventatively is different than thinking solutionally. Hmm. So I'm going to say that again because I want people to think about it. That thinking preventatively is different from thinking solutionally. Hmm. Thinking solutionally about a problem focuses on gathering up the resources to meet the unmet needs, reaching an agreement on how limited resources should be allocated among competing needs, whereas preventative thinking focuses on reducing the emergence of those needs. So, yeah. So when you think about it that way, um, it is the, you know, the, the ounce of provision, prevention worth a pound of cure. Mm. But solutional thinking asks important questions. Preventative thinking can be a helpful supplement to solutional thinking by reducing the need for it sometimes. So if you think about it, effective preventative thinking can reduce the incidence or severity of problems that require resources for the solution. That makes sense. And the fewer Yeah, the fewer resources a problem requires for a solution, the easier it tends to be to solve. Mm -hmm. So again, that kind of puts a legal aspect to the 
ounce of prevention worth the pound of cure philosophy that mm-hmm. we all know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's very applicable to the way that that medicine can look at treating our patients. And no amount of athlete, no no amount of planning can prevent every scenario. But if you're faced with a legal matter after an issue, being able to document that you tried to account for issues which may arise would be nothing but beneficial to your defense. So thinking preventatively can can be definitely on your side. Mm, that that's a great clarification of thinking preventatively and solutionally. I definitely want to keep that in mind as we continue our discussion here because that's it's different as you stated. Yeah. Sometimes lawyers are good for things like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. Wikipedia says in relation to preventative health care, measures to prevent diseases or injuries rather than curing them or treating their symptoms. And I think that this is important for framing our discussion because as healthcare providers, we are constantly going to be impacted by outside forces such as pharmaceuticals or just general symptoms treatment. And I I think that we as a profession are at a great advantage and disadvantage with that. I think our our advantage is that by practicing preventative medicine, we're making a real difference in our patients' lives. And we're able to work in areas that potentially other healthcare providers may not have a place and were recognized as a collaborative partner in the delivery of optimum health care. But yet we're at a disadvantage because when we practice prevention, we're kind of going against the norm of the healthcare industry and convincing coaches or employers to allocate time towards preventing injuries can sometimes be an uphill battle. And so advocating for our patients to get the necessary care we believe they deserve, even when it's preemptive, I think can be difficult sometimes. And the other thing is that prevention is hard to track and and it's challenging to show data on. I I know that that's changing, but historically speaking, we can't really show unless we have historical data, how many injuries we prevented or, you know, ways to track prevention in a meaningful way that contributes to our job success or retention rates. And so- I think that's right. Yeah. I think even when, even when we look at ourselves as a society- we are reactive, not preventative. And when things are going well, we often don't find reason to quote unquote fix anything. And this can be especially difficult in a competitive or a superstitious culture, which we see a lot in in sports and athletics. And so you know, take a look at all the evidence indicating that uh, multi-sport athletes are successful and less injured in their careers, except so many parents still subscribe to sports specialization. And so even when scientific research shows otherwise, we have a hard time kind of cracking these preconceived ideas that may lend themselves to the idea of practicing preventative medicine. And this, I, I think that this just makes it especially challenging for athletic trainers who 
may already be fighting to be recognized and respected while also attempting to implement ideas that aren't really agreed upon. So, I mean, despite that, though, we do still carry the responsibility. And so I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on the kind of duality of practicing prevention and the common resistance that is held towards it. Well, first, it's just one more reason that I love not only just what you're doing this season with the podcast, but what you've done with previous seasons, because you're bringing up points and putting a real specific focus on what the practical reality of it Mm. is. And when you say things like when things are going well, we don't find a reason to fix anything. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. And what we take from that then is that when things are going well for the people in power, Mm. they choose not to fix anything. Which is part of the reason why, you know, sometimes athletic trainers feel like the squeaky wheel getting, you know, the grease kind of thing. You really do. There is something to be said for the fact that sometimes you have to, you know, I I use Sisyphean, the guy Mm -hmm. that pushes the rock up the hill. Sometimes it can feel like a Sisyphean task. Yeah. But I really like that you pointed that out. Yeah. And so when many people try and ignore the concept of the ounce prevention, pound of cure, Mm -hmm. um, they see a price tag. Yeah or an investment of time up front, and they decide it's not worth it, even though having to deal with the back end is generally much more expensive and time consuming. (laughs) Definitely. Um, I I don't understand how that cost-benefit analysis is not... uh, is, is not really More apparent registering. To people, yeah. <laughs> I mean, really. Yeah. You you tell me how much it costs ahead of time versus how much you're paying the lawyers to defend you mm-hmm. in court. Mm-mm-mm. Um. So you see things like athletic departments pushing back on the costs of items like immersion tanks. Mm-hmm. But what is that one time upfront cost when measured against the value of an athlete's health or life? Yeah. Rehearsing and reviewing emergency action plans may require stakeholders to take a chunk out of their day. Mm -hmm. But what really, what is the cost of five or six hours when measured against the value of smoothly executing that protocol and making a difference in the severity of an injury or condition? Yeah. Uh, I guarantee you anyone who has been staring down the barrel of a lawsuit for failure to provide adequate care has thought back to every single thing (laughs) they could have done differently on the front end. (laughs) Every single, the color of the pants they wore. I promise you they're thinking about it. Right, right. So, you know, if you're dealing with an administrator or coaches who, you know, maybe you can't sell them on athlete safety for some strange reason, Mm -hmm. feel free to remind them of that cost-benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. Because you you can appeal to everyone somehow. And some people, it may be the bottom line. Yeah. You know, as you're saying this, it just, I can't help but feel like in a way we're preaching to the choir because I know that athletic trainers, uh, you know, we're special because of who we are, but um, just thinking about our advocacy for more of our presence in athletics and the conversation always comes back to cost. And so I I can imagine that there's some of our listeners rolling their eyes saying, yeah, if only they would hire me or, you know, and and we understand, right. That's their first hurdle is just to get in there. And, And obviously the assumption we make with our listenership on these is that you are already practicing and we're attempting to give you greater resources to practice in a safer way. But yeah, if if we expand this conversation to just organizations who aren't even seeing the cost-benefit analysis of having an athletic trainer present, then like you said, I'm sure that when they're staring down the barrel, they're thinking, well, maybe that proposal wasn't so expensive after all. And that can be, that can be something to sell them on. I mean, yeah. it's, 
understanding who you're talking to, maybe what you're hearing when you talk to an administrator or when you talk to the head of a youth league or, you know, whoever, maybe they're coming back at you with cost things. Think about who they're hearing from. So asking questions in terms of, you know, what information can I give you that will help put you in the best position to approve this and answer for the money approved? Think about who they're answering to, because maybe that is the person, maybe they would love to get you your immersion tank, but somebody else from the di- the school district is bottom lining an entire area of the budget. Think about going up those stairs mentally and figuring out what you can do to the decision maker, what you can give them that maybe helps them, you know, defend their decision to buy those things. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. On. You know, d- demonstrating our value in every aspect, whether it's saving a life or trying to get hired, uh, it, it requires, like you said, like I just said, demonstration. So yeah. yeah, absolutely. Ask questions going up the line and try to figure out, you know, where's the sticking point. Mm-hmm. Prevention is is a primary domain of our profession, but not really actively practiced in the larger healthcare industry. In fact, I think it could probably be argued that one of the predominant factors that sets us apart from other healthcare professionals is that we're trained to look for and prevent situations before they occur, as opposed to simply responding to them. And with this said, you know, we're going to focus our discussion for this podcast topic on two primary illnesses, if you will, and that's rhabdomyolysis and heat illness. Though I I do want to make sure that we state that there are a slew of situations that athletic trainers are actively responsible for preventing. And that includes, but is not limited to overuse injuries, equipment malfunctions, dietary imbalances, the diabetic athlete, facility conditions, inclement weather, mental health. And, you know, the list goes on and on of all of the different areas that we practice prevention in. And all of these situations could lead to possible legalities for the athletic trainer. If, you know, we had an unlimited number of episodes, we could probably dive into each one of them but we don't. <laughs> so, so we're focusing on two. And I, you know, I, I hope that our listeners can extrapolate out their principles to all of them. So I, I have a question for you about prevention. And that is, how can it be proven that something should or could have been prevented? And is there a kind of a shared responsibility in that prevention? The answer, believe it or not, I'm going to answer you with something that does not include it depends. Yeah. The answer to that is yes. Awesome. The, the the buck stopping for prevention is not does not necessarily rest on one person's desk. So okay. the answer is yes. Okay. <laughs> um, nice. You know, so so much of what we talk about hinges on communication. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're talking about a sports medicine staff properly communicating with the coach, while of course adhering to HIPAA and privacy requirements, of course. Um, uh, of course. Um, then identifying, you know, athletes that would be at risk is part and parcel of it. So if you have an asthmatic athlete, if you have a diabetic athlete or a sickle cell athlete, you know, you don't want to put a list up on the athletic training room wall of these people right. are going to be watched for right. diabetes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if, if at the time of recording, a good portion of the state of California is on fire. And I just, you know, it took, in my opinion, it took way too long for the the Cal football game to be canceled for Mm -hmm. uh, air quality. Mm -hmm. So that just is a perfect example. If you have a kid that you know is asthmatic, 
and you're in a situation where the air quality is deteriorated, mm-hmm. that's a communicate. Don't sit on that information. That's going to the coach and saying, hey, we've got, you know, dot, 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 kids totally. who are, you know, potentially at risk for this. And that's a that's an environmental condition like you spoke about. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's a communication around preventative conditions. So there is a duty of care mm-hmm. on the part of you know, any person responsible for the safety of that athlete, that includes the coaching staff, it includes the strength and conditioning staff, Mm -hmm. and it includes the entirety of the sports medicine staff. And so in that example, is that solutionally working? So the athletic trainer kind of identifying, hey, this is an environmental situation and I have an asthmatic kid. And I mean, obviously we're working preventatively to ensure that they're not going to worsen their situation, but could that be a solution focused example? It could be. And I, you know, I think thinking preventatively is helping the solutionally in that case, mm-hmm. because you're thinking about not exposing, you know, asthmatic kids. And I use the kids, obviously not pejoratively. Sure. <laughs> asthmatic athletes to poor air quality so that you don't have to deal with an asthma attack that happens from an athlete that was introduced to poor air quality. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, you're, you're thinking about it exactly, exactly the right way. Cool. Um, you're using the preventative thinking as a supplement to the solutional thinking right. by reducing the need for it. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I always want to ensure that we're speaking to as broad of an athletic training audience as possible. And I think that the cases that we've chosen for this topic might feel like they only apply to the traditional athletic trainer, like you said, Cal football. But I want to remind us that we're also practicing prevention when we use universal precautions, such as gloves and sharps containers and biohazard bags. And so though we're focusing on two main cases today, the act of prevention can be applied to topics that we've covered even in previous episodes with concussion and and pre-existing conditions. And that's part of why I love the way that we're doing this season is because so many of the topics layer on each other and you can go back and, and you can listen forwards and backwards and they all kind of weave into each other because as we all know, legalities don't start and stop in, in one spot. <laughs> <laughs> no, they do not. <laughs> and and I also want to challenge our thinking about rhabdomyolysis or heat illness as only affecting those patients who are in a traditional setting, especially considering, you know, the number of weekend warriors or, you know, involvement in activities such as CrossFit. So if you're an industrial athletic trainer, you're a performing arts athletic trainer, and you see one of your patients come in after running a Spartan race over the weekend, they could be demonstrating signs of rhabdo. Or, you know, if you're a a per diem athletic trainer and you're working in a non-traditional setting such as the X Games, you might get exposed to to heat illness from like the skateboarders, for example. So, you know, I I think that um, kind of disregarding the commonality of these situations with everyday circumstances may lead to how they become overlooked. And I just don't want to assume that an athlete in any of our listeners' specific settings couldn't be suffering from these situations simply because they don't, you know, fit the mold or, uh, yeah. they, you know, they, they just don't think, oh, that, that wouldn't happen to my athletes because I work in, you know, performing arts. They couldn't deal with heat illness or something along those lines. So Tammy, the cases that we're going to be looking at are mostly based in traditional athletics, but, you know, I want to take a moment and touch on both 
substance abuse and mental health. Uh, I feel like this is an area that you would be passionate about sharing on. And so (laughs) what's your perspective on the role of prevention in relation to substance abuse or mental health in athletics? Well, I'm, I am quite passionate about it. And I'm, I'm very excited about even some of the most recent breakthroughs that we've had around discussing mental health mm-hmm. and the stigma around it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate Fagan wrote a wonderful book um, on the, uh, the situation around a mental health athlete that she, that she encountered. Kevin Love mm-hmm. wrote a piece in the Players Tribune going public about his struggles with mental health. Yeah, I saw that. It was incredibly well received. Mm-hmm. And the key thing is triggering a lot of good follow-up discussions yeah. because when athletes see another athlete, a hero, a role model, when they see someone take that vulnerability or speak openly about something that they've dealt with, speak openly about mental illness, mm-hmm. um, when they see that, it even if it doesn't all of a sudden sweep away the stigma, if one person sees that and thinks, I'm not alone, mm-hmm. or, oh, this is more common than I thought, it's okay that I speak about this. Yeah. But you might have athletes that don't necessarily know how to do that. Right. So, you know, within, very key, within boundaries, mm-hmm. keeping the boundaries yeah. with your athletes and your athlete patients, you know, having those kind of communications, uh, Curbing conversations in your athletic training room that are that stigmatize or that criticize, you know, right. don't let people call people, you know, insane or crazy mm-hmm. or, you know, are you off your meds? Yeah. Little things like that that I am guilty of, sure. you know, I mean, the stuff that I didn't realize I shouldn't have said when I was growing up is <laughs> humiliating at best and ridiculous <laughs> at worst. Um So just, you know, things like that, when you're talking about substance abuse or mental health, you can have control over creating a situation that exudes safety Mm -hmm. and also understanding what the reporting requirements are for things like that. And that's tough, but there are reporting requirements. If you work at a school, there are reporting requirements that apply to teachers that would, that can also be used to apply to you. You have resources like that. So, um, yeah, I think, I think I'm happy with, we're not going far enough. But I like how it's uh, triggering a lot of good, a good follow-up discussions. Yeah, I've even seen there was a commercial with Michael Phelps on it that he basically opens up and says, I think it's a, it's actually an, an ad for a maybe a counseling app or some type of therapy, you know, online mm. or something to that effect. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I, most of us are probably familiar with the struggles that Michael Phelps had and the trouble he found himself in. And so I thought that was kind of cool. And I also know of, I want to say it's a basketball player, but it could be a football player who uh, opened up about anxiety and wrote a piece or was interviewed regarding his anxiety and how the team actually works with him to help lower it. I think he has anxiety with flying, uh, which Mm -hmm. obviously can be very detrimental to a professional athlete. Um, But, you know, just the fact that we can come up with this many examples off the top of our head, I think is demonstration that the topic is becoming more normalized. And absolutely, you know, as the healthcare practitioners, we can aid in allowing that to become more healthy and safe and open. Yeah. I mean, as an ex-gymnast, I have firsthand experience with um, eating disorders and getting getting to athletes early to instill a healthy attitude towards self-image. 
um, you know, I am fortunate that I did not suffer from an eating disorder, yeah. but it could, I could have just as easily. And there mm-hmm. were girls that I competed with who did. And so, um, you know, getting, getting to those, getting to those athletes early and, and really ingraining a sense of, um, self-confidence and the recognition that all body types aren't alike, mm-hmm. uh, the recognition that there are ranges of ranges of how, you know, mental health makes itself appear, how right. it, how it manifests right. there. It can be as simple as, you know, panic attacks. Mm-hmm. I use the word simple, meaning, you know, very, you know, an anxiety issue that can be cognitively dealt with or behaviorally dealt with sure. all the way to, you know, a level of depression that could require medication. Mm-hmm. And all of this, there's an entire pantheon of diagnoses of mental health. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, just as a, as a side note, there's, there's a big discussion going on right now in the legal community about how, um, the, the mental health of lawyers and how it then manifests into substance abuse to connect those two things together. Um, you know, the fact that law students who are already under an incredible amount of pressure, one of the ways that they get people to hang out is they're just happy hours everywhere. Yeah. So you put people who are in an incredible amount of pressure and then you encourage them at all turns to have alcohol related in a way to deal with that. And if you happen to be a law student who struggles with sobriety, you can't go to any of these functions without necessarily, you know, running into being bars triggered. upon bars mm-hmm. upon bars. Yeah. So, you know, the, the the connection between mental health and substance abuse is not, it, it's not nearly as disparate as I think people, mm. people think. Mm-hmm. And substance abuse, it's a societal issue. Yeah. Um, and it's not something that we see in athletics. Uh, it can also be, uh, you know, could, there could be family history Absolutely. of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but with all three of the topics, setting up a preventative plan, in the case of mental health, being proactive in setting up the plan and approach to treatment telling athletes how to avail themselves of that plan, all of that can make a tangible and in some cases a life-saving difference for your athlete or your colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. I love, I love all of what you just said there. That's spot on. You know, I, I, I think that it could be said that we as a profession have permeated settings because of our emphasis on prevention. If you look at the industrial or the entertainment setting where there is importance in keeping people working. I think that our uh, emphasis there on reducing the cost of injuries to an employer is is paramount. And in, in our ability to evaluate facilities and conditions or identify appropriate biomechanical processes that make us so valuable in the overall healthcare market. And so I think that despite majority of America's emphasis being on sick care, I'm excited that that we stand on the other side and that that we're contributing to a healthier workforce and, and just overall healthier communities. And so I, I wonder, do you see an emergence for the athletic trainer to work in prevention from a legalities perspective, like perhaps as a consultant or in like policy development? Absolutely. And, you know, we've both said this in previous episodes. I've said it on Twitter loudly sometimes. I've said it in talks <laughs> I give. Um, I truly believe that athletic trainers have undersold themselves regarding the value they bring to the larger table of athletic organizations. Mm-hmm. Um, we work a lot of hours, and sometimes it feels like we don't have the bandwidth for, for more work or outreach. Mm-hmm. And I get that. I so get that. 
But I encourage folks to be um, creative in their thinking, Um, develop relationships with your athletic directors, not just, you know, a collegial thing, but ways to see, again, engage that, engage that reporting, that, that line of direct reporting. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm looking Mm -hmm. for. Engage the direct reporting um, string and see what, see what's happening in colleges specifically work with the associate athletic directors that oversee the sports medicine team. Mm -hmm. I'm somewhat surprised at how many athletic trainers in college could not tell you who or speak intelligently on anything about the associate athletic director that oversees their budget, Mm -hmm. their hiring, Mm -hmm. all of these things. These should be people that you at least have a relationship with because that's part of communicating what our value is. Right. So, you know, if something comes up, you can go to them. Mm -hmm. If you have a suggestion or an idea, you can go to them. Sometimes administrators do not know what they do not know. Yep. It's, it's, it's known, it's known in the system as the, the, the unknown known. Mm. No. What is it? The, yes, it's the unknown known Mm -hmm. as opposed to the known unknown. So you don't know what you don't know, especially about a medical team. I mean, there are less than 10 people that are lawyers and athletic trainers. Mm -hmm. There's less than 10 of us, Mm -hmm. seven of us that I believe I know of. So are we assuming that an athletic director that's gone through business school or that has, you know, maybe they're a former athlete, maybe they're not, maybe they were hired from another, you know, an entirely lateral arena. Mm -hmm. We don't know, Mm -hmm. but we can't expect them to know about the medical team and what it takes to provide top quality care. We're talking about purchasing. They may not know what an immersion tub is. They may think it's a hot tub. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, sometimes you have to define it. And photocopying the page of a catalog and telling them you need it is not the way to go about getting a fairly expensive one-time, uh, one-time purchase. Totally. Um, so there are other preventative tools that might be disregarded as too expensive mm-hmm. or not necessary. When we're talking about salary negotiation, mm-hmm. staffing, lots of topics or issues about which athletic trainers have great experience and yeah. input, yeah. but we we sit on that knowledge or just sort of futilely think that it it won't um, won't make a difference. It won't happen. It won't, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you, you think those football coaches that are making you know I think somebody else today at the time of recording somebody else I can't remember who it is got a two hundred fifty thousand dollar bonus for being bowl eligible. You think they got that bonus because the university said. Hey, you know what we should do? We should throw in a quarter of a million dollars yeah. for this guy if he gets six wins. No, they absolutely most certainly did not. Yeah. So some of it is retraining the system, mm-hmm. but if you're not even trying, mm-hmm. you know, then then what's what's to happen there? Yeah. And we could say if you're not sure that you want to be a full time practicing athletic trainer for the whole rest of your career, yeah. take a look at what it would take to become an athletic director. Mm-hmm. You know, how much better for all of us would it be if there were more people in administrative positions with athletic trainer experience? Mm -hmm. And when you talk about sitting in an office, I'd love to see more athletic trainers on boards and on supervisory and consulting panels that have input on how things work. If you're in a community that has councils or groups that have input on athlete safety, particularly youth athlete safety, get on those boards. Mm. If you're a parent, maybe the PTA is an organization through which you can exert influence to benefit athletic trainers as well as the athletes. Offer to do presentations to the groups. Mm-hmm. Our knowledge is preventative. Mm-hmm. We literally carry preventative knowledge with us. We should use it. We should be loud. Let people know that we know it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that if one of our listeners starts with C, uh, episode one with you and gets all the way through the end, if they've heard nothing else, then get involved, sit on boards, have the conversations. You know, uh-huh. I, I love how 
meaningful you are in putting that in and everything that you say, because I trust that you see the difference that that it would make. And I want to take a moment here to mention something that has been said before in regards to attrition within our profession. Now, we have we have had a retention rate issue in our profession for as long as I've been a part of it, which is about a decade now. Studies have shown that after the age of 30, female athletic trainers drop off substantially, and the overall retention past the age of 40 can be as low as 20%, and that's male and female. And so what you just said about working your way into an athletic director position, or frankly, any position that you'd like to, is valuable. Our need to increase retention has less to do with people aspiring for more, and it has more to do with internal issues within our profession that we grapple with. And so in my opinion, I think that getting involved, making presentations, having a voice in the decision-making is going to increase the steadfastness in our jobs and, and likely the retention rate as well. And so I really like the things that you just said, and, and I really just wanted to make a point of emphasis that our attrition it isn't necessarily focused on just, you know, we have low salaries or nobody recognizes who we are. There's a number of issues that go into it, but we can encourage ourselves to be more fulfilled in what we do by getting involved, by having an impact on our future. And in the event that somebody does leave the profession, well, guess what? They have a background in athletic training, which is huge advocacy for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's a great point. Job satisfaction is key to longevity and retention. And I mean, what better way to be satisfied in your job than to know that your opinion matters and that people appreciate you and your work? Exactly. Yeah. And also salary. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously the salary doesn't hurt, but... And also salary. We'll save that for another episode. (laughs) I was going to say, dual tracks. Let's let's push forward on all of them. Okay, so let's shift our focus now and start looking at some of the cases. And we are going to start with rhabdomyolysis. So according to the U.S. National Library of Medicine, rhabdomyolysis is defined as a condition in which damaged skeletal muscle tissue breaks down rapidly. Breakdown products of damaged tissue cells are released into the bloodstream, and this can lead to permanent paralysis and the breakdown products can cause serious kidney damage. The first case that we're going to look at involves the University of Oregon football players from January 2017. In this case, three players were hospitalized after, quote, grueling workouts described as, quote, akin to military basic training, with one said to include up to an hour of continuous push-ups and up-downs. The report was later speculated as stating they hadn't even started using weights yet, and the strength coach was suspended after the hospitalization, an apology was issued, and they implemented modifications to prevent further occurrences. So I want to stop here and see if anybody is rolling their eyes because (laughs) we've had... Three, we've had three players hospitalized and treated for rhabdo, and yet there are statements about the workouts not being that hard because 
they aren't using weights or that they're going to implement modifications to prevent further occurrences. This just comes across as flippant. Tammy, do you feel like the culture (laughs) and the response to the injuries sustained by these athletes is, I don't know, kind of like part of the problem in our potential inability to prevent these kinds of situations? Um, Two in one program? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The answer is yes. And if you're not rolling your eyes, dear listeners, why aren't you? Yeah, um, yeah the, the infamous let's compare sports to war metaphor. Mm. Um, for the record, you know what's like war? War. Yeah. War is like war. War sports is like not war. like war. <laughs> yes. Yeah. War is like war. Um, so if you're one of those people that likes to say that, please let me lovingly encourage you to reevaluate your, your, uh, <laughs> your verbiage around that. Um, but in all seriousness, this kind of toxic masculinity is dangerous, and sometimes it kills people. Mm. Um, at, at the time of recording, we're still dealing with the fallout of the tragedy at the University of Maryland. And even since we recorded our bonus episode, I have been floored mm-hmm. at how the response by administrators and boards of trustees at, at Maryland in regards to Jordan McNair's tragic death have been have been uh, handled. Um, You know, from all the publicly released information and reports, uh, it looks like toxic masculinity really played a part in the coaching staff's approach to and care of the athletes Mm. and that their approach was clearly very dangerous. There's been uh, evidence and report that the players were shown disgustingly graphic videos while they were eating breakfast to toughen Mm. them up. Oh, my God. That's just that's. That's bonkers. There is, it it is barbaric. Mm. Uh, It's, it's inexcusable. Um, You know, we, in the bonus episode, we talked about generally about how athletic trainers need to step in and speak up if workouts are putting their athletes in danger. And we talked about the junction boys syndrome. I encourage people to look at the article that Patrick Ruby did in the guardian, um, and we'll, we can put that in the show notes, yeah, but also absolutely. there's, there's reference to it in, uh, um, in that bonus episode yep. and the athletic trainer that he talked to Scott Anderson became the head athletic trainer at OU my last year as a student. Mm-hmm. And he is one of the best in the business. And he lays out very clearly how this kind of push them till they drop mentality is simultaneously arcane, mm-hmm. um, and also dangerous. And in my opinion, any athletic trainer who is confronted with a coaching style like this has to stand up against it. And let me be very specific. If you are what people like to refer to as an old school athletic trainer that thinks this approach is okay, you need to stand up against yourself Mm. because there's no room. There's no room in this discussion. We are smarter than this. We are better than this. We have evidence as to what results. So hear me very clearly, um, if you don't stand up against it, then you're asking to be named in a lawsuit or worse, you're Mm -hmm. asking to watch one of your athletes suffer serious injury or death. I cannot be any more clear about this. Yeah. And and I I know that we touched on it even in our pre-existing conditions episode with the the athletic trainer who had an athlete pass away on them in Mm -hmm. two different university settings. And, you know, I just can't imagine how just as healthcare providers or a fellow human being, how you can watch this happen. But I mean, clearly it it's, it's 
it's available for people to do because it's being done. So it, it yeah, honestly makes me sick to my stomach just hearing you talk about it. Yeah. And there is, sometimes there are things that are outside of your control. Sure. That, that goes without saying, this does not mean that any athletic trainer that ever has an athlete under this, you know, a serious injury is, should somehow cast themselves in chains um, forever. Like there mm-hmm. are certain things that are outside of our control, sure. but to not address the ones that are so clearly within our control mm-hmm. is abdicating all responsibility and completely unacceptable. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's worth noting in regards to that Oregon case that, that the 2016 season, so this incident happened January, 2017. So it would have been right after the, the 2016 f- season finished. That was the first time since 2004 that Oregon had not made it to the postseason, And that resulted in a turnover of head coaches, which also brought in a new strength and conditioning coach. And so, you know, it just doesn't seem like a great start to your new job when you send three kids to the hospital, uh, yeah. you know, within the, the first month of being there. The article went on to state, quote, we thank our medical team and trainers for their continued monitoring of the students. Uh, you know, and it, it does say that athletic trainers were available to those who needed treatment during their workouts, though it is not clear whether the athletic trainers were actively involved in the recognition or diagnosis of these conditions. So I do want to make that clear. Moving on to our next case, it involves an Iowa football player who alleges, quote, negligence caused him physical and mental harm. And he named the university's coaches and athletic trainers stating that they failed to properly supervise and monitor him during the workout and failed to offer prompt medical care after and others reported severe pain. So what does this look like? In January 2011, there were 13 players who were diagnosed with exertional rhabdomyolysis. This athlete, William Lowe, spent several days in the hospital after being diagnosed with acute renal failure. His claim included suffering from weight loss of 20 pounds, pain in the lower back and legs, headaches, and high blood pressure over the next several months. He ended up transferring schools and noted that he may not be able to return to playing football. He initially was seeking $200,000 for pain and suffering, stating that the team was negligent in developing and implementing dangerous, improper training programs, and that he suffered from mental and physical pain and anguish that required ongoing expenses for medical care, therapy, drugs, and other treatment. So Tammy, let me pause right here. Can you explain what it means to be sued for pain and suffering and maybe what the basis needs to be to prove in order for someone to be successful in a lawsuit like that? Well, we're going to break it down very simply because again, no one listening to this wants to do first year torts uh, <laughs> of our podcast. If right. you do, please contact me. I'll talk you away from that. Um, but it's important to note that pain and suffering can be physical and also emotional and mental. Okay. And they can be, you can have both or you can have one or the other. Mm-hmm. Physical pain and suffering is the pain of the actual physical issues. Sure. Um, it can include potential future detriments that a plaintiff might suffer. Mm-hmm. That's easier to detect because you can, you, can, you can somewhat objectively recognize physical pain. Mm-hmm. 
mental pain and suffering is a result of the physical injuries or can just be a result of the of the actual actions upon which people are suing and can include things like emotional distress, anxiety, depression, fear, shock. In some cases, it can include mood swings, problems sleeping, um, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Wow. So yeah, it can, I mean, it, it can range and that's harder sometimes to see because how do you, how do you objectively prove that you have sleeping issues? And, and and as a result of a physical exactly, situation. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about it in the past um, that in order to bring a suit of this kind, there really needs to be four elements. Mm-hmm. So there's a duty of care has to be present. There has to be a breach of that duty. Mm-hmm. There has to be causation that the defendant's failure to exercise the reasonable care caused or contributed to the injuries. Mm-hmm. And the plaintiff had to have suffered actual damages. Mm-hmm. So it's the last element where the physical and emotional distress factor into the plaintiff's case. Okay. Okay. Uh, I do want to let the listeners know that we're going to do an entire episode on negligence and all of those four factors. So if you're feverishly writing down notes, don't worry. We'll, <laughs> we'll have plenty of content for that. But okay, so that that helps. So the investigation for this showed that The workout was only held about once every three years as a test of physical stamina, mental toughness, and to see who wanted to be on the team. And I I can't help but hear the the echoes of, you know, the machoism that we just talked about and and that that toxicity. But the investigation ended up clearing the athletic trainers and the coaches of wrongdoing and determined that the injuries were unintentional and not the fault of those who designed the workout. And they ended up settling for $15,000, which Williams' lawyer says that his clients were satisfied with and thought that it was an amicable amicable resolution. And they praised the university for using the case to raise awareness about rhabdomyolysis and helping other athletic programs avoid similar problems. Along with the settlement, the university paid some of Lowe's hospitals and medical expenses and allowed him to keep his scholarship after leaving the team. And so, I mean, things ended well, it seems, but I just can't help but feel like $15,000 is a huge departure from $200,000. And so, Tammy, how do you think that that happened and where do we end up at 15 when we start at 200,000? Well, there are a lot of reasons that settlements can differ from what's initially claimed in a suit. Um, Portions of a claim could be dropped. Uh, The court may decide that the claimed amount is too high. Mm. Uh, Frequently, the party that brought the suit, though, may decide that the offered money to settle is worth it based on their own personal situation. Mm. Um, Bringing a case, particularly against a larger entity who has money to defend it, is very, very expensive and can take a very long time. Um, Sometimes plaintiffs come up with a reality and they make that cost-benefit decision. So, um, you know, it's not hurt. It's not unheard of. But in this case as well, you're talking about fifteen thousand. But we don't know how much of his medical bills the university paid. Right. So there could be other. You know, if we look at you know how what kind of financial relief he actually got as opposed to just a fifteen thousand dollar check, which remember also would be paying the lawyers as well. Mm. So 
it's not as if he just cashed a $15,000 check and went on his merry way. Uh, so um, that, that can be part of it. But uh, really, in, in litigation like this, it's sometimes the plaintiffs just have to make the cost-benefit analysis of what is best for them. Yeah, and it seems like maybe their focus wasn't necessarily on getting rich out of this, but also, you know, they noted that they were pleased to see that the university was using this as a cause to raise awareness. And uh, I think that in a lot of situations, victims just want to see this not happen to somebody else. So maybe it's not I think that's just right. about the money. Yeah, I think a lot of times it's not about the money. For sure. Because the the leverage that you have it can be can be quite significant. I mean, mm-hmm. we will see what happens with this Maryland case, but mm-hmm. I, I think Maryland has cause to be incredibly concerned totally. for reasons that are very similar to our examples we just used. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to stop here for today. Our next episode will continue the discussion about preventable conditions including looking at specific cases involving heat illness. As well, we will be talking about the use of rectal thermometers, which is a widely debated topic in the relation to heat illness cases. So definitely be sure to tune in and we will continue that conversation. Thank you for listening. You are now eligible to earn your free Category A CEU by logging on to theadvantage.com slash CEU and taking the quiz. If you're enjoying listening or know a colleague, looking for continuing education, please share our link and don't forget to like us on social media at The Advantage. Thank you to Mr. Logistics for the music you've heard throughout.